0: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Just imagine you're in charge of running the economy. You're in the driver's seat. You're the one, as the Reserve Bank Governor, who's in charge of making the economy go faster to try and get more people employed, or having to slow it down when it's running too hot and generating inflation. That's where we are right now. We've got an overheated engine, if you like. Adrian Orr is the driver, and there's a bunch of complaints from the back seat (laughs) saying he's doing it wrong. It's not easy though, because unfortunately, unlike a car, when you're looking out the front window and when you move the wheel, the car moves almost instantaneously. And when you put your foot down on the accelerator or on the brake, things happen pretty quick. You can control it. But just imagine if when you had to drive that car, you knew when you were looking at the speedo and the tachometer, that what you were seeing there With the result of the things you did to the accelerator and the brake and the wheel 18 months ago. So it's like trying to drive a car, knowing that the things you do now will have an effect in 18 months, and that to know where to go to, you have to look in the rear vision mirror. (laughs) You can't look out the front. That's hard. And that's where Adrian Orr is at now. He's looking into the speedometer, and it says, too fast. You're redlining this economy, you need to slow down. And that's what he's been doing for the last 18 months or so, and in particular in the last year, as he stopped putting his foot on the accelerator and started to put his foot on the brake. But let's look back a bit to those moments in late March of 2020, when things really started to get cracking. Because back then on that weekend, we were about to shut our economy, There was fears of 30% unemployment, that our housing market could crash, that GDP could not only just go into a recession, but could be a depression. And Adrian Orr, sitting in that driver's seat alongside Grant Robertson, had to make some decisions real fast, and he really threw everything at it. He pushed the foot down on the accelerator right to the floor. And remember, it was almost at the floor before we got to COVID. There wasn't much further to go. He had to cut the official cash rate. Remember, that's the rate that sets the base for all interest rates, including mortgage rates. It was already at 0.75% before COVID. So the first thing he did was cut it to 025 slammed his foot onto the accelerator as hard as he could. He then released all of the handbrakes and all of the speed limiters by taking off the LVRs. And then he did something extraordinary, extraordinary for a New Zealand central banker. He started printing money. This is a bit like strapping a rocket on the back of the car and also plugging in a turbocharger. Really get cracking. The trouble was, in retrospect, he did it too much. There was just too much speed and heat pumped into our economy, and that's why we've got inflation now of 7%. He's not alone. Pretty much every other central bank in the world did exactly the same. But he did it in New Zealand for the first time, and he did it in an awful hurry. There wasn't a lot of consultation with the opposition or policy processes that went through parliament. It was real seat-of-the-pants stuff. And beside him on that front seat was Grant Robertson. They worked very well as a pair. They were navigating this car and driving it as fast as they could. But now we know they overcooked it. This week on When the Facts Change, we talked to Nicola Willis, the opposition spokesperson on finance, who has done something extraordinary this week, along with Christopher Luxon, her boss. She has broken a convention that's been in place in New Zealand politics for 30 years. And not only outwardly criticised the Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank Governor, but called for the government not to reappoint Adrian Orr for a second five-year term. In anyone's language, that's an expression of no confidence. But it didn't come out of the blue. The Reserve Bank has been looking at itself, and the government has been defending the Reserve Bank's actions over the last year and a half, and concluded that it did okay. Even though we had a 45% rise in house prices, in effect, a shifting in the wealth structure of our society and a breach of the 1% to 3% target range for inflation. We're clearly going to be over that level for quite some time. It's 7% now. It's going to take a year or two at least to get it back down into 1% to 3%. So there are questions to be asked here. In this interview, for When the Facts Change with Nicola Willis, she calls for the Reserve Bank governor to be put on ice, if you like, for a year until the next election. The reason it's important that the convention about political independence has been broken is because the Reserve Bank Act of 1989 was designed to stop this very situation. In fact, a much worse version of this situation. I want to take you back for a tiny little history lesson in New Zealand's political economy to July the 14th, 1984. Robert Muldoon had just been thumped in the election by the fourth Labour government of David Lange and Roger Douglas. But it wasn't quite the government yet. On the Sunday after the election, Robert Muldoon wanted David Lange To agree to a joint statement saying that there would be no devaluation of the New Zealand dollar. Remember, of course, that at that point, the New Zealand dollar was a fixed currency linked to the US dollar. Decisions about what the level of the currency were, what the level of interest rates were, were literally in the hands of Robert Muldoon, who not only was the prime minister, he was the finance minister. It was an extraordinary concentration of powers, without a separation between bureaucrats and politicians. It meant that on that Sunday, there was no agreement about what would happen next with the currency and the interest rates. So Spencer Russell, the Reserve Bank Governor at the time, and his deputy, Rod Dean, decided to freeze financial markets for a day, to turn them off, essentially. No transactions, no paying for bills for imports, no getting money in for exports, a complete cessation of activities for a whole day, Monday. Monday. And over that day, it was expected that Robert Muldoon would cede power, hand over to the Labor opposition, and there would be a decision about whether or not to devalue. By then, there was such extraordinary pressure that a devaluation had to happen. But Robert Muldoon refused to hand over the keys to the car. And we had this awful situation where everyone looking at the car in the backseat couldn't see who was in charge of the car. There were all sorts of people grabbing for the wheel. You had someone trying to put their foot on the accelerator and put their foot on the brake at the same time. It was an awful situation. So after that constitutional crisis, both Labour and National decided we will never have that again. We will create an independent central bank which targets an inflation band and politicians will not criticise that central bank. There will be one lever, in effect, the official cash rate, which is the base for all New Zealand interest rates, and it will be set by the Reserve Bank Governor. It's been a slight change in recent years in that now there's a committee that decides on that level, but in essence, it is supposed to be completely independent. However, that was in an era when there was one lever, when you weren't strapping rockets on. (laughs) And also putting a whole bunch of turbochargers in and releasing the speed limiters and doing all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. And because of the results of it, which are much higher inflation than there should be, and of course all the dramas we saw with asset prices, the opposition are saying we want an independent inquiry into monetary policy. I did this interview on Wednesday evening before the release of the Reserve Bank's own review of its own activities, which Nicola Willis has rejected as not truly independent. And she is saying that if National gets in, in November of next year, as the polls say they will, she will immediately introduce a independent inquiry into monetary policy. And we'll see then what happens to Adrian Orr's future. Remember, he would be in power for an entire term of a next national government. The risk in the eyes of financial markets and those who deal in the economy is that you would have a Reserve Bank Governor and a Finance Minister completely at odds where the Finance Minister wasn't seen to be having full confidence in the Reserve Bank Governor. The big risk, two people grabbing for the wheel and scrambling to put their feet on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. That's why... This week's When the Facts Change is so important, a challenge to our orthodoxy of independent central banking and who will be in charge of interest rates and the Reserve Bank in a year's time. Welcome to When the Facts Change Again to Nicola Willis, National's finance spokesperson here in Parliament. Great to see you again.
1: And great to be here, Bernard. Thank you for having me on.
0: Because it's very exciting at the moment. There's a lot of talk about monetary policy. That's my idea of a fun time, a debate about (laughs) monetary policy. And this week we've had some momentous events, I think. The government decided to reappoint the current Reserve Bank Governor, Adrian Orr, for another full five-year term, starting in March of next year and not ending until 2028. We're going to have an election, the Prime Minister says, possibly in a year's time. And it's possible, the polls are suggesting it's possible, that there could be a change of government, a National Act government, and you would be the Finance Minister, Uh, in theory. um, what did you? How did you feel when you saw this announcement this week from Grant Robertson of the reappointment for a full five years?
1: I was shocked and I was disappointed uh, because I had hoped uh, that the Minister of Finance would have taken Nationals' cries for help a little bit more seriously because we have been telegraphing for many months. Our view that prior to the reappointment being made or the appointment process being completed, a genuinely independent inquiry should be done into the monetary policy decisions that have been made over the past couple of years, particularly in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been extraordinary times, uh, and we don't think there's been a proper evaluation of whether the Reserve Bank made all the right calls uh, and whether, therefore, it is the right decision to reappoint the governor uh, who was the lead of those calls.
0: Can you give us a sense of why this is a big deal? This is not just politics as usual, you know, government says something and therefore we oppose it. There is something special about the Reserve Bank and the way that politicians for the last 30 years have approached that in public. There's been this unwritten rule, I suppose, that it's quite rare for politicians of the two main parties to criticise not just the bank, but the governor of the bank. And so on July 26, when you came out with this proposal for an independent monetary policy inquiry, I suddenly realised, oh, this is really quite different. What had been going on in the you know, months and years leading up to that July 26 call for a monetary policy inquiry, which got you to that point, which is a bit of a Rubicon for a you know mainstream politician in New Zealand to cross.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's important for people listening to this podcast, Bernard, to um, know that that letter from July 26 wasn't just a National Party letter. Uh, and something that's very unusual, that letter was co-signed uh, by the Green Party, who I'm not in the habit of co-signing that many letters with, uh, the ACT Party uh, and Te Party Māori. So what that represented was, I think, widespread questions across New Zealand communities about whether we got it right during COVID-19. So let's take our minds back to what happened, which was that the Reserve Bank, Uh, responded to what looked like it could be an economic disaster by uh, using really unusual monetary policy instruments that hadn't been used previously. Large scale asset purchases, which uh, you can call quantitative easing. Let's just keep it simple and say money printing. Large amounts of money printing. Uh, And these were instruments that hadn't been used before. And we did start to see the effects of that during COVID-19. You know, we had house price inflation in one year of 28%. I mean, that is extraordinary. You know, and actually other countries around the world, yes, they had some asset inflation, but it wasn't that severe. So we had that happening. We had this funding for lending program, which by the way is still going on, basically providing cheap subsidized uh, loans to the commercial banks. All of that was happening There's a question about whether that was coordinated properly with the fiscal response, by which I mean the Minister of Finance was also borrowing and spending huge amounts of money to keep the economy going. And then we find ourselves in the hangover from all of that and we have inflation now outside what's been the acceptable band, which is uh, 1% to 3% uh, for more than a year, uh, now running at a 32-year record high of 7.2%. This is all kind of economic talk, but what this boils down to is New Zealanders have come through a time of extraordinary asset price inflation with all of the inequality effects that brings with it. And we're now coming down the other side of that. And we're also having a cost of living crisis in which people can't keep up with price increases. And the question that we're asking and that I think the other parties who signed that letter are asking is, well, did we overdo it? Did we print too much money did we actually pump too much cash into the economy? And could some of these effects have been avoided if the Reserve Bank and the Minister of Finance were a bit more careful in their decision-making? And if so, what lessons can we learn for the future? And that's the critical bit here. Uh, can we avoid any mistakes that may or may not have happened? And we think those questions should be asked and answered.
0: So um, this is an unusual situation, as you say. COVID happened. There was fears of 30% unemployment. Everyone threw the kitchen sink at everything. And it's possible when you throw kitchen sinks that you break things (laughs) and you make mistakes. And it could be argued, well, you know, uh, we're in this situation. We had to do something. Look, 3.3% unemployment. Look, the rest of the world's got inflation too. Uh, Cut us some slack, guys. You know, we did our best. Um, Why are you so grumpy?
1: Yeah, well, uh, look, a couple of things there. The first is when we look at the UK and Europe who have really high inflation, let's also acknowledge they're suffering an energy crisis. They are directly affected by the lack of access to gas from Russia, Ukraine. New Zealand is not impacted by that in anything like the same way. So we are different from those countries. But let's also look at the scale of our economic response. So when you look at how much money New Zealand printed relative to other developed economies who also went on a bit of a money printing binge, we were the fifth highest relative to the size of our economy. So we did that in a big way. And at the same time, we had a really big fiscal response. So relative to the size of our economy, again, uh, our government borrowed and spent around the second highest of developed countries. On that comparison, who's number one? The United States of America. And you may have noticed they've got an inflation problem too. So I think what some economists would say looking at that is, well, we went really hard on two sets of accelerators both the monetary stimulus and the fiscal stimulus. So is it possibly a logical consequence that we're now suffering from, we suffered from both high asset price inflation and now high consumer price inflation? And again, the question here is, did we do what was right for New Zealand? Uh, Are there decision points that could have been dealt with differently and that in future we could learn from?
0: When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10%. Uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we've seen inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. So the finance minister has come back at these criticisms over the last few months and says, ah, oh, you know, hindsight, uh, Harry, is um, second-guessing us. Uh, if you were in the same position, you probably would have done the same thing. Um, what's your response to that?
1: My response to that is, well, so why not have an independent inquiry? Why not ask experts to have a look and either endorse or reject that view, minister? Um and I would note that, of course, any judgment that that independent review made would probably have some reflections on the Minister of Finance and his government's decisions as well, not just the Reserve Bank, because. To be fair to the Reserve Bank, when they first proposed using these unusual monetary policy instruments, actually ahead of using them back in 2020, they said to the Minister of Finance, if we were to do this, we'd have to be carefully coordinated with you and you would have to think through the policy implications in terms of asset price inflation and inequality and you'd have to think that through. Uh, And so I think there's an open question about whether that was properly thought through, but also the Minister of Finance specifically had to underwrite and indemnify the Reserve Bank for their money printing. So he directly got involved here and signed off on them doing that money printing program, which does have an opportunity cost in that um, that bond purchasing. Now we're running losses of around $9.5 billion on that.
0: Yeah, so it was – it was a different situation to the old version of independent inflation targeting central bank, where they yeah. had basically one tool for one problem, and they pulled the lever back and forth. You could think of it as an accelerator and a brake, and uh, it was very simple, if you like. But once they started bolting on turbochargers and uh, rocket rockets on the back of the car, there were multiple people involved there. In that situation, is it ever possible to have a truly independent central bank that is targeting a single uh, thing like an inflation target? Or to be frank, is is it over the era of independent central banking? And it matters because we were the first and everyone says, ah, look, New Zealand got it right. We'll copy that.
1: I think independence uh, will remain and is still critically important. Uh, I think uh, having an independent Reserve Bank and a monetary policy framework that supports that uh, is important. But we also need to be transparent uh, about the coordination between the Reserve Bank uh, and the government's fiscal policies, uh, and transparent around the compromises uh, that have been made uh, in the past and that may happen in the future. I, again, this is why I think it's so important to open it to an independent inquiry and have that appraisal. Because if there are issues uh, about how that coordination worked during COVID-19, whether it did get cosy, whether it did get close, let's understand that, let's examine that and look at, well, what, what might we have to consider in the future if this kind of closeness occurred again?
0: So you've asked these questions of the Reserve Bank Governor as a member of the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee. And, uh, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. He's run the New Zealand Super Fund. He's, you know, an expert. Um, his argument was, let's step back and just breathe and think about what we've gone through. We have got this. It is business as usual. Um, what do you think of the Reserve Bank Governor's approach in these select committees, public events, and, and also... Um, whether uh, the government's response, which is to say, actually, our response was a success and we haven't seen any change in inequality and um, the inflation is an international problem, you can't really blame us for that. What did you think of those comments, for example, in the select committee?
1: Well, I think we just have to remember where we are, which is that we're in a situation where inflation is so high that some families are literally choosing between heating and eating, where there are a large number of people who watched house prices inflate by 28%, still scrimped and saved, got themselves into that market and are now facing the double whammy of negative equity in their home And in the case of a woman I spoke to last week, her interest bill next year going up $24,000 to service her mortgage. So we're in a situation where the economy is not in a great place. Inflation is eating away at people's pockets, and we have interest rates rising more rapidly than they have in 30 years. So against all of that, to then say, hey, look, strong economy, we've done great – doesn't seem right. And so my challenge to the Minister of Finance has been, you were very happy to pat yourself on the back when you were doing all of that stimulus during COVID-19 and say, we're doing a great job here. I remember it vividly uh, from the debates during the uh, 2020 election. But now that we're on the other side and it's not looking so great, you're saying, look, there's nothing to see here. It's nothing to do with me. Both can't be true. And so why don't we at this juncture look back and see whether some of what we're experiencing today could have been avoided or diminished if we'd taken different decisions uh, back then.
0: The Reserve Bank itself has is doing a couple of reviews. One of an annual, of every once in every five-year review of how the Reserve Bank Act, which was changed a wee while ago, is working. And then a second one looking at how the bank itself um, achieved its own monetary policy targets. And that includes a couple of um, expert outside peers, a a former member of the Reserve Bank of Australia's Monetary Policy Committee and a former deputy governor of the Bank of Canada. Isn't that enough as an independent uh, look at the Reserve Bank? Um, When this podcast comes out, we will uh, have the results of that. but the Reserve Bank says we don't need a your independent inquiry. We've got a pretty independent one here.
1: Well, it's not independent, and I'm not alone in saying that. There have been uh, other economists have come out in the past couple of days to say that's not that's not meeting the bar for independence. And the reason for that is first, who's writing the initial draft? Well, actually, uh, it's. Uh, more junior or middle manager staff at the Reserve Bank. And you've got to think about where they're coming from. Are they going to write a report that says, well, look, actually, boss, we think you got it totally wrong? That's going to be difficult for them to do. So that's the first step. You're asking the bank as an institution to mark its own homework. The second bit is, well, what difference do the independent reviewers make? And, of course, the independent reviewers can only actually respond within the frame that they are given, which is the terms of reference that the Reserve Bank set for itself, uh, the report that it's written for itself. And I'd liken it, it's a bit like saying, well, hey, look, I'm going to mark my own homework, but then I better get it reviewed. So I'm going to ask my favourite teacher to tell me whether or not I did a good job. Uh, It's not truly independent, and I think that's what's required. Truly independent, because then everyone can have confidence in it.
0: So um, we're now in a situation where the Reserve Bank Governor is now going to have a second term starting on March the 27th next year. It's possible you could be the Finance Minister come November or December of next year. And we're in this really then very awkward situation where you have a Reserve Bank Governor who, let's be honest about it, you don't have complete confidence in. And you've said that you would, if you get in, immediately launch an independent inquiry, what happens if something goes wrong in the global or our economy in that time when the financial markets and the economy are looking at the Reserve Bank Governor and the Finance Minister and going, boy, these, these guys are <laughs> they're both
1: trying to grab the wheel at the same time. This is a bit ugly. Well, first, I don't want to prejudge what the inquiry says. Uh, But you're right, our first step is to commission that independent inquiry and we've telegraphed that very clearly. Uh, But the second thing is uh, we will continue to support the independence of the Reserve Bank. It's worth noting that in the uh, past couple of years the uh, Minister of Finance has changed the way the Reserve Bank uh, works. There's now a Monetary Policy Committee. So the decisions that are made uh, on the official cash rate Uh, for example, are made not just by the governor, but by a committee. Uh, So there has been quite a lot of institutional belts and braces put in, I guess you could argue. And my view is that we can continue to have a very functional uh, reserve bank that's operating independently from the Minister of Finance while also having an independent inquiry going on.
0: Because a lot of those decisions in those final weeks of March and early April of 2020 were made between two men talking to each other on the phone or directly sitting in desks a couple of hundred metres away from each other. They were not and could not, because of this virus, have military policy committee meetings or do official um, briefings and have the usual um, extended policy process. They were flying by the seat of their pants. What if you're in that situation where, you know, you late at night after three pizzas and a, and a beer, you're having to m- make decisions with this guy to rescue the New Zealand economy. Could you do
1: that? Yes, because we must both be professionals, which is that we have solemn duties uh, to the people that we serve, the New Zealanders that we serve, and clearly defined roles about whose job it is to do what. Uh, and uh, I'm confident that I can do that. Uh, and I'm sure that if Adrian Orr were sitting with us, he would say that he too could do that.
0: Nicola Willis, thank you very much for being with us on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
1: Kia ora e te iwi, te butler here, podcast manager at the Spin-Off.